love you, but we confess we don't love you like we should. As we grow in Christ, we hope that we love you more and that we love you better, but it will not be until that last day when we stand before you and we see you for all that you truly are that we can truly say that we love you in the way we should. But God, this morning, may we learn how to love you better and how to know you better through your word. God, would you be with me as I preach? Help us to understand what the message of this passage is. Help us to apply it to our lives well as we see Christ continue to build his church in our town and in the entire world. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. So looking up some different statistics and some different methods on how gold is refined. You see, gold is found when it's found in a mine. It's usually found as an ore and it's mixed with a whole bunch of different rocks and metals. And it doesn't look as shiny or as refined as you see in your gold necklaces or jewelry or bracelets now. I don't know if you have any of that, but I imagine if I had a gold watch, it would look that way. Gold is usually mined from an ore, and then it is extracted with some cyanide to try to get some of that impurity and metals out of the ore. But then it's put through a trial by fire. There's actually a lot of different methods that are used to try to heat gold so that all the other metals and all the other rock and impurities are taken out. But it's often put through extreme fire and heat to try to get that pure gold, to have 99.7 or 99.9% gold, which is what you hope to have in your jewelry. Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Such a fascinating book, the book of 1 Peter. We looked at it a little bit last week. But Peter's telling us that God puts trials, he puts heat, he puts hard things in our lives so that we can show the genuineness of our faith. He applies pressure, he puts trials in our lives so that he can see what we're really made of. If you've ever watched or read or maybe you've had experience with the military, they put them through rigorous training camps and boot camps and obstacles to try to see what are these guys really made out of at their core. God uses hard things in our lives to see what we are made of. James talks about this in James chapter 1, that we should be joyful, we should be thankful in trials. That's hard for us to do, right? None of us are going into a trial and are very excited but he puts those trials in our lives so that he can produce patience and that when patience has its perfect work, James says you can be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. We all face hard times. We all face trials. We all face tribulations. But God puts these hard tests in our lives so that he can see what we're made out of. Now, he already knows what we're made out of but so that that can be exposed in our hearts. 
And in this section of the book of Acts, we're going to see the church face a variety of different trials. And we're going to see what the early church is made out of. I said last week, we're seeing in this chapter, in this section, trials from outside the church, persecution, human authority, government that is trying to restrict the church, that is trying to stop their testimony for the gospel. We're seeing trials from outside the church. Next week, we'll look at trials inside the church with Ananias and Sapphira. What happens when people inside the church aren't living like they should? How would the church respond? So we're seeing persecution. We're seeing trials from outside and from inside the church. And the point of it is this. We're seeing what the church is actually made out of. What is at the center? What is really there? We saw last week the faith, the trust, of Peter and John before the Sanhedrin, but we still were left with the question, how would the early church respond to this? We looked last week and we saw that there were over 5,000 people who had received the gospel from this movement. But how many of those people would stay? How many of those people would be committed to the gospel? And what I want us to see this morning is this. In the fires of persecution, Christ's church will remain faithful. Christ's true church, not just the buildings, not the denominations, but the people, the people in Christ's true church, in the fires of persecution, will remain faithful. Does that mean they're going to be perfect? No. Does that mean they're not going to doubt or have times where they slip up like Peter? No, but in the fires of persecution, Christ's true church will remain faithful. And what we really see is something beautiful. Just like gold, when it's refined, when it's put through fire and it is done, it turns into something beautiful for everyone to see. Christ's church, when put through fires and persecution, at the end of it, becomes something beautiful. Let this be an example for us that as hard as life gets, as hard as trials may be for our church, whether they're outside the church, whether they're inside the church, God puts hard things in our lives so that we can remain faithful and steadfast to the gospel. Let's see how the early church remained faithful in two ways. First of all, we'll see how they remained faithful in prayer. They remained faithful in prayer. Look at verse 23. When they were released, talking about Peter and John, when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders said to them. So immediately after they leave, remember last week we saw they had healed this person, this lame person, they were faced with persecution. They said, don't preach the gospel anymore. And Peter and John resisted that. Now, why did the Sanhedrin not kill them or persecute them anymore? Well, it's because everyone had seen this miracle. So this is not the most intense persecution the church would face. This is not the most intense opposition they would face by far. But this is a sign 
that the early church is going to start facing these trials. Everything's worked out pretty well for the early church up until this point. But when things get hard, we all know that that's when people start to have to decide, is this going to be something I'm going to commit to? Is this going to be something that I oppose the government over? We ended our sermon last week talking about how do we face civil authority? There's times where we respect the government, where we obey, even when we might not want to. But there's times when we respectfully submit and obey. And there's other times, because of the gospel, that we make a stand for Christ. So Peter and John are leaving this place, and they're going to their friends. Now the Greek word here actually means a close family bond. And it shows us the closeness, the love, the unity that the early church had. They became a family. They became close. This wasn't just the other apostles that they went to. It was the entire congregation of the early church. So the other members of the early church, they heard what Peter and John had to say. They wanted to warn them about what was coming. And it says they lifted their voices in prayer. How would the early church respond? They would pray. They would respond in prayer to God. And I love this aspect of early church life. That as life gets hard, as things got tough, they responded in prayer to God. And notice what they emphasized in their prayer. They said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. That word sovereign Lord, it's really emphasizing God's sovereignty, his control, his lordship, how he's king over all. Remember what they said to the Sanhedrin last week? They said, you have to decide for yourselves whether you want to tell us whether we should disobey God or not. Because we know this is coming from God, and we would rather obey God than what you are telling us to do. So in this prayer, they say, God, you are sovereign. You are in control of everything. You're in control of our lives. You're in control of the Sanhedrin, this governing Jewish body. Remember, this was the highest Jewish authority in the land that they would face. But they're saying, Sovereign Lord, you're in control of it all. One commentator says, In times of stress, in times of trial, it's no small comfort to recognize that God is in control. Do you remember that this morning? When life gets hard, when things get tough, do you recognize that God is in control, that he has power? When people oppress you, when trials come into your life, do you realize that God wasn't caught off guard, that none of it took him by surprise? Notice they say that God is a creator. He displays his power in creation. Sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth. God, you made everything in heaven. You made everything here on the earth. Everything in the sea, whether it's the animals, the trees, the creation, and the people, and the nations, and the kingdom. 
God is in charge of it all. He's sovereign over it all. Everything that is going on is under his control. And why is that? Because God made it all. God designed it all. He knows how it all works. And in Colossians it says that God not only made it all, but it's in God, it's in Christ that all things are held together. Do you realize this morning that the atheist, the person who rejects God, if God wanted to, they could just explode into millions of atoms and molecules. It is only through God that we all exist. We are just dust. And if God wanted to, he could make us return to dust. They emphasize this, and I, I should have pointed this out earlier, but this is one person who's praying for the whole group, okay? So this isn't the whole early church saying all these things at the same time and like a chant. But I think one person led in prayer, much like Mark did for us earlier, one person was chosen to lead in prayer for the whole group. I actually think it was probably Peter because of this Old Testament quotation. We've seen that Peter likes to quote from the Old Testament. In verse 25, he says, Who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why do the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves. The rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. This comes from Psalm 2. Would you turn there with me just briefly? We looked at this psalm several months ago when we started our study through the psalm, Psalm chapter 2. It's a psalm of David recognizing God's sovereignty. But I think even when David wrote it, he's looking ahead. He's looking ahead in time to Christ and how people would reject Christ. You'll see verses 1 and 2 are identical to what we see in Acts. In Acts, it was just translated, it was taken word for word from the Septuagint, which was the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Nations, even in David's time, they rage against God. They reject his sovereignty. This is a huge point throughout all this, that these nations reject the sovereignty of God. It says the people's plot in vain. They rage against God. Raging has the idea of like an animal that's not under control. When I first got my dog and I put him on a leash, he would just fight and he would pull and he would try to leash fight. Sometimes, especially if I was yanking on it too much, he would just roll over on his back and he would try to bite the leash and he'd get mad at me. And then I'd pick him up and he'd think, oh, what? I didn't do anything, you know. And then I'd put him back down and we'd walk and then he'd leash fight again. He's raging. He's fighting against my authority. He wants to go do his own thing, right? He wants to be his own little animal. And he had to realize that I was in charge, that I was the one who was in control. That's the idea here of the nations raging against God. They buck against his authority. They do not want to recognize him as sovereign. It says the kings of the earth set themselves against God. They it has the idea, especially in Hebrew, of like a defensive 
gesture where you're setting yourself. You don't want to be under their authority. You think they're going to attack you. And notice at the end of that verse, it says against God and his anointed. Who is the anointed one? It's the Messiah. It is Christ. The one who would come and save the children of Israel. When you reject the Son of God, you reject God. You reject his sovereignty and his plan. Why? Because Christ is the rightful ruler. I love how this psalm continues, and they don't quote the rest of this. But in verse 3, it's a quotation from these rulers. It says, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. We don't want to be under God's authority, under God's control anymore. So we're going to reject it. We're going to get rid of their bondage, these ropes that they tie us down with. Then in verse 4, how does God respond? He who sits in the heavens and laughs. God thinks it's funny. God laughs. He gets a good chuckle at it. And again, I just think of an animal that's trying to get away Think of my dog when he was a puppy and how funny it was to try to see him get off of his harness or off of his leash because it's so futile. Now, if he got off his leash, I wasn't laughing. I was running around and chasing him. But it's so funny when you see an animal that doesn't understand that they're not in charge, that they don't have control, that they're not an authority. God, in the same way, he laughs at those reject his sovereignty and it says God holds them in derision the New Testament believers are applying this psalm to their situation and they interpret it for us that's what I think is interesting they offer explanation for us in an interesting way look at verse 27 with me for truly in this city we're gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus. So who's the anointed one? It's Jesus. Both Herod and Pontius Pilate. We're going to see here that both the Gentiles and the Jews rejected God and his authority. The nations, when it says, why do the Gentiles rage? Why do the nations rage? Ethnos means other nations, Gentiles, the outsiders. Peoples actually refers to Israel. Israel should have recognized God's authority, but they didn't. Herod was actually part Jewish. He was half Jewish. And both Herod and Pilate put Jesus to death. Now you might say, well, Pilate didn't want to. Well, he didn't want to, but... He did. And if he really didn't want to, he wouldn't have done it, right? So Herod and Pontius Pilate put Christ to death. It says, along with the Gentiles, being the Romans, the outsiders, and Israel. Christ should have been Israel's king. Christ should have been Israel's Messiah. But they put him to death. What's the real issue at stake here? It is that God is sovereign. He is in control. But mankind bucks against God's sovereignty. They reject God's 
kingship, his rule over their life. Man does not want to admit that God is in control. Why are there so many theories for how the world came into existence? It's because man doesn't want to say God created everything. Why are there so many thoughts on what genders are and what real marriage is? It's because they don't want to say that marriage is between one man and one woman in God's created order. There are many who reject God's sovereignty, sometimes in different ways. Sometimes even we as Christians can say, I know better. I want to have control. I am sovereign. God can't tell me what to do. We recognize that this is wrong. That God is sovereign. I always think it's funny when kids leave their parents' houses because there's so many rules. And they go into the military where there's even more rules and orders and people they have to listen to. They show a heart that does not want to respect authority. Now, all of this that has been said by the early church is actually leading up. It's like a prelude to their actual request. Look at it with me. Verse 29, they're saying, God, you're sovereign. You know everything that's happened. This is why Christ died, because mankind rejected your sovereignty. They rejected your authority and control. And now, O Lord, look upon their threats. And grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Is the request that the persecution would stop? It's not. It's not actually. They never say that. What is the request for? God, when we face these threats and these persecutions, would you give us boldness? Would you give us confidence that no matter what comes our way we are still going to preach the gospel we are still going to follow you would you give us boldness look at verse 30 while you stretch out your hand to heal and do signs and wonders that are performed in the name of your holy servant jesus so while all this is going on there's still going to be healings And people who are saved and people who are seeing miracles from the apostles through the name of Jesus. They offer this prayer to God. And notice God responds right away in verse 31. And when they had prayed in the place where they were gathered, it was shaken. We don't see this a lot in scripture, but we do see that God sometimes will show his power, his presence, his approval by shaking a place. Now, I'm thankful he doesn't do that necessarily today because that would get a little scary for us if the church started shaking as we were praying, right? But it's how he showed his approval back then. He would shake that place at different times. Notice it says they were filled with the Holy Spirit. I said this last week about Peter, that while Peter was sanctified, it doesn't necessarily have the same idea when we think of filled with the Spirit today, but it means he was speaking God's words. It means he was speaking for God. It has the idea of like inspiration. 
Peter is speaking God's word, his inspired words, through the power of the Holy Spirit. And it says they continued to speak God's word with what? With boldness. What did they ask for? Boldness. What does God give them? Boldness to preach the gospel. I want us to think about this before we move on. How does prayer help us to remain faithful in persecution? First of all, in prayer, we depend on God's sovereignty. The very act of me praying and asking God, God, help me. I need your help. I need your guidance. It shows what? That I'm not in control. That I don't have it all figured out. That I am not in charge. In prayer, we recognize God's sovereignty, that God is in control, that he's created everything, that he knows what is going to happen. Similarly to that, in prayer, we recognize our weakness. God, I need your help. God, I couldn't do this on my own. God, I am weak. I need your strength. Lastly, in prayer, we receive boldness. In prayer, we can be strengthened and empowered by God's Spirit to go and preach the gospel. Are you faithful in prayer this morning? When life gets hard, when things get tough, when there's pressure, when there's persecution, is your first response to handle it all yourself, to try to be tough, to try to be resilient? Is your first response to say, I'm going to pray because God's sovereign, I'm not, and I need his boldness. May we all pray and ask for God's help and boldness as we share the gospel. Notice, secondly, they were faithful in good works. They were faithful in good works. Look with me at verse 32. Now, the full number of those who believed... This word could also be translated, maybe it is in your Bibles, as multitude. The number, and it's a great number of people that have believed. It's over 5,000 at least at this point. It says they were of one heart and soul. This is another summary statement from Luke. We saw this earlier in Acts 2. It tells us about what church life was like. And it's going to also transition us into further. Um, it's going to transition us into further narratives in Luke, specifically with Ananias and Sapphira. Now, notice it says they're of one heart and soul. We know the heart is the center of a person's emotions, their mind, thoughts, will, actions. It all comes from the heart. Earlier, it says. That in verse 24, they lifted their voices together with one accord. This is having the same purpose, mindset, thoughts, goals. They were unified. They were connected. Now, a couple weeks ago, we said, what's the key to unity? It is humility. That I'm not thinking of my own interests, of my own wants, of my own desires. But I'm thinking of other people and what they need. They were of one heart. They were also of one soul. This 
soul, this word for soul, has ties back to the book of Proverbs. It could be also translated as one spirit, your soul. They're connected in the gospel. They're literally baptized into the same body of Christ. They're united with the same baptism. Turn to Ephesians 4 just briefly. Paul explains this, I think, very well. He says in verse 1, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with what? Humility and gentleness. Now, why would he talk about humility here? Because humility leads to unity. And that's what Paul wants. With patience, bearing one another in love. Eager to maintain what? The unity. The unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Why is unity so important? We explained that. Because there is one body. Because there's one spirit that belongs to your call. There is one baptism, spirit baptism. One God and Father and all of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Why is unity so important? Because we're all connected together in the same body of Christ. And the early church got this. The early church looked out for others' needs because they were one. Because they were united. Turn back to Acts 4 now. They were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to them was their own. They weren't selfish with their possessions. Now, some people have tried to take this passage and other passages in Acts. And they've tried to say that the early church were Marxists or socialists. That there's one pot and everybody puts their money into the same pot and everybody gets all the money. Even if you worked harder, if you had more money, it's all equal. That's not what's going on here. It's just extreme generosity. The early church was extremely generous with one another. And notice this was need-based. They did this as they saw needs in the community. They gave and they gave willingly. So we see that they were generous. We'll come back to this in a moment because it's going to be explained more for us. But look at verse 33. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. They're preaching the gospel. They're sharing the gospel with others. And how are they doing it? With great power. Great power. Great boldness. Confidence. What did they pray for? Boldness. What did they receive? Boldness to share the gospel with others. Have you ever wanted to share the gospel with someone, but you've been too afraid? Have you ever wanted to share the gospel with someone and you don't know what to say? Have you prayed during those times? God, would you give me boldness that I would know what to say, how to say it, and that I would have the courage to share the gospel with those who I know that need it. They did this with great power. They were filled with the Spirit. God's Spirit was instructing them on what they needed to say, on how they needed to act. 
notice at the end of that verse it says, And great grace was upon them all. The grace of God works in the life of the church to enable the church to fulfill her mission. And not just in salvation. Turn to Titus 2 with me for just a moment. We studied the book of Titus several months ago. And I was reminded even yesterday as I was at the IFCA regional, it was an exposition of Titus. And one of my favorite chapters in all of scripture is Titus 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. So God's grace brings salvation, but God's grace doesn't stop there. In verse 12, it says God's grace trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions in the present age and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. God's grace teaches us how to say no to sin, selfishness, ungodliness. It also teaches us how to say yes to godliness upright living how god wants us to act how god wants us to live it says great grace was upon them all they were powerfully sharing their testimony look at verse 34 it says there was not a needy person among them for as many as were owners of lands and houses they sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid them at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to any who had need. So they told their lands, they sold them, and they liquefied it, and they gave the money to the apostles. Now why did it go to the apostles? Because they had authority. Because they had seen Christ, and they were given authority in the early church. Now, there were a lot of needs back then during this time. Only 4 to 7% were in wealthy, were considered the wealthy class. Only 10% were considered the middle class. Everyone else was considered to live in poverty. There were slaves that were attracted to the gospel. Because the gospel says, I don't care what you come from, you are equal in Christ. You are all the same in Christ. So people gave, they gave generously, and they gave it to the apostles, not so the apostles could get rich. This isn't like Joel Osteen or some prosperity gospel preacher, but so the apostles could take that money and distribute it to those who had needs during that time. The apostles had a special authority in this way. Later on, we'll see that elders would come to the church, and they're similar in some ways to what the apostles did, but they're not the same. The apostles were set apart. There aren't apostles today. I'm not Apostle Lance, okay? They're, they're different. They were just for that time. But they did have authority. Notice it gives us, as Luke ends this passage, he gives us one example of such extreme generosity in verse 36 thus joseph who is called by the apostles barnabas which means son of encouragement a levite a native of cyprus 
sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. This Barnabas is such a great character in Acts, one of my favorites. He would later go on to help Paul in his missionary journeys. He would be an encouragement to him. His name was actually Joseph, but he's called Barnabas because he's such an encourager. Now, some people tell you it means son of exhortation, and you know he was a great preacher. And he might have been a good teacher of the Bible. We know he did that. But in this context, Luke is specifically emphasizing his role of encouragement, how he encouraged others in need, specifically here, financial need. He had a field, he sold it, and he gave the money to the apostles so that they could help others. He definitely didn't have to do this. Again, this isn't socialism, this isn't Marxism, but this is extreme generosity. We need more Barnabases in the church today. Not that we need more people giving money, but we need more people who want to encourage others in whatever way possible. God works through the church in the face of persecution. He puts trials, suffering, hardships into the church and he exposes what is really there. And when we see Barnabas and trial is brought into Barnabas's life, persecution, it says he's a Levite. It's not going to be a great thing for him to oppose the Jews if he's a Levite. How does Barnabas react? He is generous. He's generous. He gives of his own money. Generosity is not the mission of the church. The church is not just about giving to the poor, but it is something that we can do. It is something that we can do to help others, to help those in need. There's plenty of examples in Scripture, in the Proverbs, in the Levitical law, in the teachings of Christ, where we are told to give to others, where we're told to be generous with our means, with our money. Yet giving is not just the mission of the church. We talked a couple weeks ago that we want to help people physically, but we also want to help them spiritually as well. Look back at Acts 3. What does Peter say to the lame man? He says, silver and gold I don't have, but what I do have I'll give to you. In the name of Christ, rise up and walk. Peter says, I'm concerned about you physically. He even heals him. He helps him physically. But he's more concerned with helping him spiritually. How can we be faithful in good works? We can give to meet physical needs. But we also want to make sure that we meet spiritual needs as well. And we want to encourage others like Barnabas did. As we close this morning, I've got three encouragements for us. Three encouragements for the church under trial. First of all, trials are necessary. God says they are going to happen. They are part of the life of a believer. 
Trials are necessary, but trials are also temporary. They only happen for a time. You will not be under trial forever. Now you might say, I've been under trial my whole life. And that may be true. But there will be a day when there are no more trials. There will be a day when there's no more suffering, when there's no more pain. Trials are temporary. Trials are necessary. And lastly, trials expose spiritual growth. This week we see it positively. The early church, their boldness, their faithfulness, their love towards others. Barnabas, what a great example of encouragement, of godliness, of a great encourager in the gospel. Next week, we'll see a not-so-great example. Two people that were selfish, that when things got hard, showed what they truly were. Trials expose our spiritual growth. It's hard in the face of trials and in the face of adversities to have an eternal perspective. It's hard to say, you know, I know this isn't going to last forever. I know it's only temporary because trials are real and trials are painful. And my trials may not be your trials, but oftentimes God uses specific things in our lives to help us grow. But yet trials are only temporary and they show what we are truly made of. So may we be faithful by God's help to endure trials well as his church. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your help, Lord. These examples and acts of how we can faithfully respond to what you're doing in our lives to this heat, to these trials. God, may we be faithful under persecution as a church to respond well. May we be faithful under own personal trials that maybe no one else knows about. May we be faithful to follow you. And may you expose in us faith that is genuine and more precious than gold. In Jesus' name, amen.